Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked. A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, welcome to another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm your co-host Chris Wells. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And our guest today is Michael Duncan, senior advisor to various companies who provide services to uh, insurance brokers and insurers themselves. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Um, You have a long and storied career in the insurance industry. Why don't you give us uh, an intro to yourself and what you've been doing and what you're doing right now? Yeah, perfect. So, um, yeah, my background has been insurance the last 40 years. Uh, My my last job uh, working uh, in the in the industry was with Zurich Insurance. I was a global head of underwriting excellence. Um, my background has been underwriting predominantly all my life. So, you know, where I sit today is I advise uh, companies uh, who are providing services to the insurance industry. And I think it's important to give you my sort of little party pitch, which is, you know, I support companies uh, who are focused on the digitalization automation of sales and distribution and underwriting. Well, that is the perfect background to talk about what we want to talk about today, um, which is very much focused on underwriting. So a little bit on the past, present, and future of what underwriting the underwriting role looks like within the insurance carrier. So, so Michael, on that, um, would love to get your thoughts on, and we have a lot of what the future could be, right? It could be all about the new generative AI hype. It could be, um, a, you know, new solutions or capabilities to support the underwriting workbench, but would love to get your sense of kind of where did that role start? What did underwriting look like in the past? And then, um, you know, we'll just make our way through, through history into the future. Um, so when, you know, at Zurich or, or prior experiences, what, how has underwriting shifted um, from whatever period of time you want to start with? Okay, well, let's go back to the 80s, uh, which is uh, probably the best era, of, era for music and the worst era for underwriting. Um, Old claims <laughs> on both sides. I love this. <laughs> um, maybe if I look back, you know, as I started my underwriting career, uh, the, the thing that would have struck me at the time was the, the it was paper-driven. Everything was about the paper. The submission that you got was was paper but interestingly enough compared to you know today as an example the information we got back then was quite limited um and you know maybe if i give you one example i was a financial lines underwriter and i underwrote directors and officers liability and i would have received with every submission three annual reports the last three years annual reports and if you think about those annual reports they're sometimes you know 50 100 pages and you would just receive paper, and then you'd have to wade your way through that um, over time. A lot of the information was was well out of date. Nothing was contemporary in what you received. And I suppose that's the world where it all started. That was, you know, as as time moved on, you know, people have, have felt that the industry has uh, has really transformed over that period of time. But realistically, the only thing that really changed much of what happened in the underwriting world. Uh, was Lotus one two three, which I don't think anybody on this uh, will even know what that is. Um, oh, I know Lotus. I know yeah. Lotus. Okay, there's one, and um, and that moved into into Excel uh, in in the nineties. But that you know that was where we started uh, back then, and obviously you know as as time went on, 
you know, we had the internet and you, you could get some information off the internet for public companies. Uh, you can get anything for private companies. Nobody had a, a web page. And it gives you a sense. It was, it was all about paper. It was massive submissions, doorstop things that would turn up if you're a property underwriter, for example. Um, and then you'd have to wade through it. And you know, large, large property accounts back then would take an underwriter weeks to wade through because there was no, there's no way of putting it into a proper Excel spreadsheet and you know doing the slicing and dicing all that information. So you know, I, I suppose the way I look at it back then, it was you know you had to use a lot of judgment, which is your own judgment in your head. Machines, machine learning, none of that existed out there. And you know, if I just go to another area, you know, pricing. This is just probably the bit that really gets me. My first job, I was given a piece of paper, um, which told me that you you find out the size of the company, you find out its turnover, and you multiply that for by a percentage to give you a limit for one million dollars, two million dollars, three million, five million, whatever it is. The the uh, that was it. The, that and maybe you know, most people would have got those pieces of paper from the likes of Munich Re or Swiss Re, and everybody used pretty much the same pieces of paper with adjustments here and there. So there wasn't really any science to it, I think is the best way of putting it. Um, nor were there any capital models, and uh, nor were there any accumulation models, uh, and there were no pricing algorithms. So that was the world. That's the past of what Androiding was. So, so I'll pause there for that one. Yeah, I we talk a lot on the podcast about how you know, streamlining your workflows, digitizing them can be a competitive advantage. We talk about how the analytics you can do on top of clean data can be a competitive advantage. What was the competitive advantage back then? Um, good question. I think there were two things. I think it was, it was judgment. Some people were just better at making underwriting judgment than others. And it was relationship management. It was it was fine. You had to have strong relationships with your brokers to win the business because you know, everybody was using pretty much the same rate sheet. So you, and it, but I think judgment was important. I, I I don't think you can underestimate the power of judgment. Which, by the way, I'll, I'll call out early in, in in this one is I can't see in certainly in my lifetime, and maybe that's a bit short, shorter than others, but I just don't see judgment being automated um, in 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 the short term. You know, maybe at some point will be on my my timeline. It will be, but it was judgment and it was relationship management and understanding the customer. I think I spent much more time in the eighties and the nineties actually meeting customers, irrespective of what the what the what what the line of business was, as as opposed to what happens today. What was that on the golf course, Nicole, or? <laughs> Martini <laughs> lunch. Yeah. This is going to sound really weird. I was too junior to get onto the golf course. So I wouldn't have been invited to those meetings. So, um, yeah. So I, I don't want to spend too much time on, on the past because I know we've got a lot to talk about for present and future. But one question on that, right? So everything came in on paper. Um, in today's world, there's a lot of, okay, if this information is missing or we think it's incorrect, we have all of these third party solutions that we can can bring in right to to reconcile that information if you had a submission come in i'll say i'll just call it not in good order right there was something missing was that something that automatically just said we we can't underwrite this or was it a lot of was it 
like phone call back and forth? Like how much, how long did some of those, those things take um, just to get the right information um, in given how manual and how paper driven and how, um, you know, non-digital that the work yeah. process was at that time? Yeah, maybe the best way of describing is what actually happened through that whole process quickly. So, you know, I, I, cluster, I was a broker as well but at, at one point, um, right at the start of my career. So a customer would ring me, um, a new customer, and generally that's how it would happen. They would be, you know, I worked for Marsh at the time and, you know, Marsh was known as being one of the big, biggest financial lines brokers at that point in time um, in, in Australia. The customer would ring you and say, I need a proposal form. So I would then post a proposal form to the customer. And maybe a couple of weeks later, that would come back to, back to me, missing some information. So I'd bring the customer right to the customer, tell me, that, you know, can you send me the additional information? Once that came in, then it'd probably take me because of, you, know, you, had, you, know, you had a stack of paper two foot high on your desk. I'd get to that submission after about a week, send it to, you know, seven or eight insurers in, you know, this, I, I would have to fill up what they call a quote form, uh, which was a carbonized, Three three copies, um, and I have to complete complete one for every single underwriter I was sending it to. Then they would all get get posted off uh, to the underwriters, and I could wait a week, two weeks, three weeks for a response to maybe come back to me. Um, and then once I got that in, then I wrote to the customer. Now, to your point of um, if there's information missing, well, the underwriter would would send me a note. Maybe um, you know, this gives a sense of my age. I was there when they. Uh, working in the office when they got us all together to uh, show us the new fax machine. Nobody had ever seen one before. Um, so you know, it, it, was a, it was a slow, slow process um, that was out there. So there was no – nobody got something, you know, that they wanted within a 24-hour, 48-hour period. It just didn't work that way. Um, so, yeah, that gives you a sense of where it was. Obviously, it's completely changed today, but it just gives you a sense of how – how the processes worked then and you know, mistakes were made. I think the best way of looking at it is things took a long period of time and you're know, just understanding the customer circumstances. You might have a six week period between start to finish and your customer circumstances have changed during that period as well. Fascinating. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to start to transition to the present. We don't have to rush it, but I want to make our yeah. way there. I was in and around the financial services industry for about 10 years, quantitative risk management stuff. And we provided services to insurance companies. And for that whole time, insurance companies were talking about digital transformation, but it didn't seem like anything was happening. So, and now it does, by the way, it does. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have a lot of good data points in the go back and listen to the old episodes audience. Cause there are a lot of good data points there, but what do you think, changed in the last call it 20 years that now this is happening that processes are being digitized workflows are being reevaluated and streamlined what do you, what do you see as maybe the top couple of things that changed i think it's the need to survive it's not it's not a choice you know if you don't digitalize if you don't take expenses out and um, through your workflows and the like if you don't get better at underwriting more granular and uh, respond quicker it obviously to your customer needs, but respond quicker to the evolving landscape. And that could be trying to understand what's happening to your capital consumption and so on. It's that need of having to be able to react really quickly. And that's what this digitalization provides you. Access to that data in real time would be a really good example. Interesting. What do you, 
What do you see as the prime mover there in terms of what what was the initial catalyst for for pushing this? Obviously, every if someone does it, everyone has to do it. That totally makes sense to me. But what really got the ball rolling? Um, I'm just trying to think back what really transformed it. If I just think through what started for me, the transformation at least it, it was when you know. D- databases were brought in where I could actually work out whether I'd seen a customer in the last two years and quoted on it, and I could see what I'd actually quoted on. Because in the past, I had no idea. Like, I may may have seen it, but it was like, who, who knows where that file is and everything else. And those those you know, databases, and it was DB4 and things like that, if I remember off the top of my head, um, they, they get started to give us access to that information and go, okay, that life is a little bit easier. I can understand things. Um, and to me, that was probably the starting point. And, and that wasn't done on an enterprise-wide basis. That would have been somebody in a, in one of the operations in, a, in an organization. To give you a sense of that time, I was working in Hong Kong, um, and the rest of the organization had nothing. I think the other bit is, is email. Email was transformative in terms of what happened with insurance. And what's interesting, my first email account uh, was in uh, 1990 three, four, a CompuServe account. Um, and my organi- the, the companies I was working for at the time was three, four years later before we had email. So we were all using our personal accounts. We were, uh, you know, governance would, would never get, it never passed governance now, but we're all using <laughs> our personal email accounts because we knew it was more efficient. So if you start to see, that was a real starting point of you this change that was going to occur through the industry and um, wasn't driven by data at that point it was just driven by efficiency you know it, things just worked a lot better it wasn't a fax going here or there it wasn't turning up to your hotel and getting a doorstop of faxes that had been sent through to you and that sort of stuff now was it simple with 14k dial-ups trying to download something it was pretty pretty slow i can tell you and expensive if you're in a hotel at that point in time yeah i i just want to I want to make a note of that and then I'll hand it off to Michelle because I know she's got a bunch of questions given that she's much more knowledgeable than me. Um, What you're talking about there is really boots on the ground, grassroots innovation, not some top down initiative. Right. And I think I think that's probably thematic through the last decade or so. Actually, Chris, you're you're right on um, kind of my my wavelength there. What I was going to comment was. Um, you know, in the VC space, we see we, we talk a lot about innovation in the insurance industry over time and kind of how do new technologies get get adopted. And, um, you know, one of the things that that we've as, as, a, as a team within our firm talked about is that insurers or the insurance industry is not technology averse. It's it is willing to to adopt technology. It just that technology just needs to reach a scale at which it can be adopted effectively within the insurance industry. Right. And I think that's what Michael's starting to talk about here is, yeah, email was a brand new thing. We started, it would have been great to have it roll out immediately, but the scale wasn't there. Not everyone had email. Right. And so you have to to kind of wait for for that technology to get to a point where something as large and um, involved as the insurance industry can, can leverage it. Um, so that, that was just my comment, Michael, on what you were saying. Um, the question for you is with, with, with new technology comes new challenges, right? And um, I would love to get your thoughts on, especially maybe as we're transitioning to this conversation about the present day or the future of, of underwriting, it is all about data. 
today, right? And when you think about the conversation of, of unstructured data and all this data that insurance carriers have locked in their systems and their databases that they're not able to access, it feels like what you were just talking about of, of that transition to, it's not paper, now it's email, we can download things, we can file them, we can you know image them or PDF them. Was that the start of this challenge of filing away data that now people are really trying to get access to? Uh, yeah, and, and the thing is, we didn't understand what back then. I don't think we understood the value of data. Yeah, I re, yeah, we we sort of did, but it wasn't. And and probably part of the fact is, even back in the in the in the nineties, there weren't catastrophe accumulation models. So data, a lot of that stuff just didn't, it, it wasn't needed. There weren't, yeah, the pricing models were pretty unsophisticated sort of sort of things. It was starting to emerge. And I think we we under, started to understand the um, the claims data much, much earlier than we did the value of the underwriting data. And so that's always been lagging claims data, which is it, it, it better structured. The MDM for claims data is, is better in most organizations relative to the underwriting data. And that made good sense because you needed that claims data to be able to do the pricing. And then nobody was giving that much consideration to exposure data at that point in time. Um, so we've, we've seen that. I, I think there's also a point to make here is that during that sort of period, insurers got really excited about you know, enterprise-wide policy systems, transformational IT programs where you could spend a couple of billion dollars and you do all these wonderful things. And it's fair to say it's carnage out there. Of those transformational programs, I I think you'd struggle to find too many that were that delivered what it said on the tin. Mm -hmm. I think that, by the way, the reason I mentioned it is because insurers became shy for a long period of time of expending large sums of money on singular projects. They they went they went down the route of more bite sized things. See how that can be. See how that can be op operationalized. See that it actually. The cost-benefit analysis that was in the original document is is actually being realised as time goes on. So I think insurers got you know, got a little bit nervous, and and uh, you know certainly organisation, pretty much every organisation I've worked for would have at least one or two IT large IT projects that um, did not deliver anywhere near what they thought it was going to deliver. And was that d digging a layer below the size of the project? Was it just an incomplete picture of how systems and processes interacted with each other. What was it that made it hard for them to deliver there? I, th I think it was a whole range of things. Certainly, I'm, I'm not an IT expert, but the way I would always look at it is, you know, there was a system that one of our organizations used that was called Polisite. That was still being used 10 years ago. It was built in the 70s. There was another one called um, uh, ID90, built in the 90s. Then trying to put this fabulous architecture on top of it to make everybody's life easier, the feedback I would have got is it's quite complicated to, you know, to to put a a Tesla engine into a 1960 vehicle. You know, that was the way it felt to me was was out there. And again, I still think even back you know ten years ago, the value of data, the completeness of data, the contemporaneous of that data, was still not a priority for insurers. And as, as Michelle, you you mentioned. You know, insurers had loads of data sitting in systems and the excuse, and this is probably fair, was, 
we can't access it, it's unstructured, and there's no technology that allows us to, to get to it. And I think that was a fair statement. But then for the next 10 years, we just let unstructured data continue to exist within the organization. So we amplified the problem. So I I think we've we've at least skirted around the edges of the opportunity with the unstructured data. As that unstructured data has accumulated, what risks have accumulated with it in your you know, in your estimation? I think where insurers are really good now is trying to is today is understanding. Yeah, is it is this is not a hundred percent complete, but certainly understanding what exposures they have in their business at a certain point in time. Yeah, it's it's not a hundred percent, and if you think about how it works, that piece of data that you get from a customer gets into it gets into sales and distribution, goes into underwriting works its way through claims and finally ends up in the capital model. Yeah. So that it that's the way that's that little dot of data works its way through and where it ends up at the at, at the end of the day. And I think insurers recognize that one of the challenges they had is the speed at which that data moved through. But importantly, the quality of that data as it moved through. Was it always complete? Was it correct? Um and and so on. And were they combining the right elements? Because it was it could have been unstructured, it could have been trapped. So there are a number of things out there that insurers were sort of starting to understand. But I do, and, and I'm as I said, I'm not a technology person, but I would have always been told trying to access unstructured data, uh, even in you know 2018-19, was a massive challenge for most insurers. That makes sense. I mean, the the technologies we have today for doing that were nascent at the time and yeah. the people who knew how to use them you could probably count on a few hands um yeah and i think certainly the experience that i had that insurers tried to get in there then most insurers built you know huge hubs of data scientists in there trying to do things and and in some cases trying to build technologies that would probably be better served just going and buying it off the shelf from somebody um as opposed to trying to credit themselves. Michael, we've been talking a lot about what's happening inside the insurance carrier, right? I, I'd love to get your thoughts on, so in the in the past, there was mostly judgment, not a lot of guidelines, not a lot of structure, right? I would argue in the present, there is a lot of that, right? You've got underwriting guidelines, you've got underwriting managers that are are monitoring that accumulation risk as as underwriters are are booking are you know binding business. Um how do you think about the transition from past to present and the um, the component of the MGA or the MGU partner to an insurance carrier, right? How does some of that knowledge from the underwriting side get get sent over? How do, how do what they're developing maybe improve what the carriers are seeing? Um, what's that data exchange like? What are those guidelines like, that structure around those relationships? Yeah, it... it, it it's a great question because earlier this week I had a call with a number of MGAs. Um, so they're similar to MGUs in, in, in the US, so program business for want of a better word. The speed at which that data is moving from, say, an MGA to an insurer is very slow um, and it's still to this day. I think more importantly, the ability of the MGA to access things around an insurer's appetite which is continually evolving. So they may have appetite for California earthquake 
a month ago, that appetite changes as more exposure is loaded in and so, and so on. So one of the challenges that exists both for carriers and for those uh, program MJs is how quickly they can get those insights back and forth to one another. And that's partly primarily due to, to how quickly that data is moving back and forth between the, the various parties. So it's, it's, it, I think it's more efficient now that it's been as, you know, it's still a challenge, especially in that MGA, MGU um, sort of area. I worked in capital markets for a while, and this kind of problem gets solved easily in a place where you've got a bid and an ask, right? And like, I want this many of this stock or this sort of, you know, interest rate instrument. Um, it strikes me that there's no equivalent for like appetite for risk on the insurance side, or is that a naive supposition? Uh, there is an appetite that just hasn't been uh, a product, I believe. Yeah, there's no marketplace. Yeah. Market. All right, I got to go. I got a new idea for a business. <laughs> just kidding. Although people have tried to set up marketplaces and they haven't been successful, but you know, maybe that's an offline conversation as to why they haven't been successful. Okay. Michael's already telling you why your business won't work before you've even uh, created none it. My, none of my ideas are good. I know that. Um, so before we transition to future, anything else that you want to lay down as sort of characteristic of the present state of underwriting before we talk about how do we go from here? Yeah, look, I, I think the last four or five years have been transformational to a journey, which is the industry is embarking on, uh, and it's, it's just going to happen to them. And what I mean by that is, Nothing's really changed, if I think about it, it, it from yeah, over a, a long period of time. We've got better models. You know, we've got catastrophe models as opposed to a little bit of guesswork here. We've got pricing models and 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 the like. But if I think about have we really have workflows improved to a point where they are automated or they are digitalized? And in the personal line space, I'd say to a large degree, yes, that is the case. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it'd be difficult to argue that 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 in that segment of the business hasn't. That, you know, there's a lot of things that happen there. In the commercial line space, it's been very different. Um, and I challenge, and this is probably bringing us into the what does the future look like? Is that the the industry is at 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 the start, and it's been at the start for the last four or five years, by the way, of what I su suggest is a an industrial revolution for insurance. Um, and it's trans it will transform the insurance industry. It's driven by two things. It's driven by uh, obviously great new technologies that are emerging um, that allow insurers to be able to access data. So if the, if I bring us back to the the, the first industrial revolution, uh, our steam engine uh, is, is analytics and our railway tracks is data. yeah so, if we think about it that way, you start to say to yourself, the core, the foundation models and, and technologies that are emerging through generative AI and everything else, they're all fed by data, quality proprietary data. And I, I just, we can come back to that word later, but proprietary is very important uh, from an insurer um, that they have data that they can trust and that they know the source of that data, and which is critical um, in terms of if they ever want to contest uh, you know, or challenge a customer in a claim. 
want to jump in on some, and um, this is probably a different topic for a different episode, but Mike, I'd love to get your thoughts because you you mentioned um, what I believe to be accurately that personal lines have been, you know, furthest along if you think about the personal lines versus commercial lines insurance. And it's, it's quote unquote innovated faster and it's gotten to be, you know, more digital and more, you know, much, much faster transactionally than the commercial. Um, but, you know, we have this, this theme that keeps emerging of, you know, autonomous vehicles and obviously tons of data points now available if you if you're connected with you know the OEMs and and the manufacturers etc but you also have this question of liability and so I, I wonder if as a result of that that the future of personalized insurance specifically auto insurance will start to look more like having the challenges that some of the commercial insurance has had to, to digitize and innovate um, because it's a brand new risk type that insurers aren't aren't used to or as a society we probably aren't used to having to face yeah look i i think it is to a, a, to a certain degree um what i'd say is in the personal line space is really interesting let's stick to motor because it's, it's quite a big space of various products yeah, an electric engine is no different to you know bringing some carbon materials into a vehicle that's it costs more to repair. It's got all those sort of stuff, stuff in there. The the autonomous vehicle at the moment, I you know, certainly from where I'm sitting, I'd be sitting there going, okay, God, there's a lot of lawsuits against some of these manufacturers at, at the moment. So is it is it a, is it is it trustworthy to the degree as an insurer that you'd be really comfortable? Somebody driving two hundred kilometers or a thousand miles or whatever it might be uh, autonomously. Uh, yeah, maybe it is, by the way. I'm, I'm no expert in that space. I think the challenge for personal lines insurance is twofold, and we can bring about on another session if you if you'd like. The first one is the products are driven by regulation; they're not driven by consumer demand. So, uh, if you just think this logically through, you buy property, you buy householders. You might buy a workers' comp policy for people coming onto your property. You have an accident health policy and you have a travel policy. All you're buying is property casualty and parametric through all of those products. The regulation says that you need to buy them all individually. So that to me presents the first challenge. The second one is, and I don't know the answer to this one, but it, it just intrigues me. Why can't embedded insurance be the largest part of the market? Why is it not that everything you buy has got some level of embedded insurance and it's it's value embedded insurance. I think there's a lot of products out there that don't create any value for the customer. So two two things I don't have answers to to both of them, but they just they they play in the back of my mind as to it, will personal line be transformed by the way through data that enables those products enables insurers to go to regulators and say you know we can do something which is ticks all the boxes, it's just that the wrapper looks different to what you would expect. It feels like the limitation there is the consumer understanding that it's value add, right? Like, I understand that if I get my kids a Happy Meal rather than, you know, nuggets, fries and a toy, it's a better value. But, you know, insurance is more complicated than chicken nuggets, I, I suppose. Yeah, maybe, maybe you should be giving them kombucha type <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fair. But but that, that is a good point because I also think that it's a little bit of you have to drive it's change management, right? Because historically this is how you've always bought insurance. And there's a little bit of you know, generationally you have different buying patterns, but there's a little bit of 
well, why, like, yes, they're offering me insurance, but is it a scam? Like, is, do I really need it here? Because it's probably covered under this other product I have, or do I, is it something that I really want insurance coverage for? Again, back to that, we don't understand the value side, but it is a little bit of, um, you kind of have to either go all in to drive that embedded insurance strategy, I think, or if, if you keep offering both, um, until there's kind of a generational shift where everything is bought through an embedded channel, you're going to have that that back and forth of I've already got it here. Do I really need it? Yeah, I agree. And I think you know, it, that personal lines, I think is a completely different, uh, it's a much broader subject and the like, but uh, yeah, one to pick up definitely. Should we shift to the, the future? I think we have to. You uh, got to take out the crystal ball, Michael, let's do it. Yeah. So I sort of started it with the industrial revolution, didn't I? So I left that one for myself to, to fill in all the blanks. And, um, Maybe if I look at it this way, and let's stick to workflows because they're probably more interesting um, if I think through my, what my experience is. And yeah, and you, many people talk about this, but I, I, I'm, I, I feel quite passionate about the fact that you know, most underwriters spend, you know, and the percentages are not right, but 30 or 40% of the time is non-value add activities, even still today. Um, 30%, 40%, something like that is non-technical value-add activities. So things that you could set the parameters and it could be flowing through a workflow. And the workflow is, you know, a portfolio manager says that you should look at this, you shouldn't look at that, uh, as opposed to the underwriter looking at everything because it's there's no there's no workflow that allows that to happen. And yeah, the rest of it is all judgments. What I'd like to see and what I believe will happen is the majority of the that that first bit. Uh, will disappear from an underwriter's day job. And what they're going to be allowed to do is, is to really make strong judgments on accounts. Um, now, in the in the what I'll call in the middle market space, that is going to be fully automated uh, all the way through and portfolio managers will be making that judgment. That's that's what the future holds. So the the S of SME, the and the M of SME, the, you know, probably that's the that, then that's happening already, by the way. But the S is being pretty much fully automated for most carriers or on the way to being fully automated. The M and up into the large commercial, that's where we'll start to see this, this, this real shift in, in the coming years. And, and just because of the uniformity of that business. Yeah, well, it doesn't need to be uniform. It's just that you, a good example is why is an underwriter looking at a, you know, if you get a schedule with 200, 300 properties, and some schedules are 2,000 properties, by the way. Are they looking at the flood risk of every single property that's there? As an example, probably not. You know, would it be better for them for it to be throwing that data of that property flowing through the workflow and saying you only need to look at these two? These are the only ones that you need to look at and make a judgment call on because the rest of them are below the parameter that you've set. For, and maybe you, the underwriter, is setting, not your portfolio manager. You want to look at certain things. So you're still using your judgment to craft your portfolio. But what it's doing is taking up the failure demand that occurs day in, day out for underwriters. All this work you know, they do that they don't need to be doing. So I think the future is one where um, underwriters are going to be able to do that at, at very easily, and that will make their life a heck of a lot easier. It's And I'll be clear here, there'll be some efficiency gains, at clearly. The customer and broker experience will be a lot better because the turnaround times will be a lot quicker, and they'll be able to respond but then downstream into you know capital modeling and all of those aspects 
that's going to move a lot quicker because that data is is going is much better quality coming through. Yep. Digital intake is going to improve the quality significantly, very quickly of that data. They're going to be able to access data within their systems. Yep. What I what I mean by that is exposure data that they have on a portfolio um, that is currently trapped in system. There might be historical data that they can't get to, but they want to see how things have evolved over time. So the, the way I look at it is judgment at, at the point of underwriting will be transformed. You know, they'll be using more of that. Portfolio managers will have access to better tools, bit more data, and therefore we're going to be more precise as underwriters in what what what, what they do. Um, and customers are going to be happier because they'll be getting better results and, and so on. So I think that's the future. Um, you know, you could delve into, you could go down some very dark holes of being um, saying that it's 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 going to be 100% automated. I just don't see that because I don't I don't believe judgment, as I said earlier on, is going to be you know, something machines are going to be doing in my, in my lifetime. I think I'm with you on that, although I want to probe that. Uh, yep. I You raised the specter of autonomous vehicles. I'm a huge skeptic uh, there. But I also want to pull this other thread, which is... Um, <laughs> And I'll I'll frame it this way. So George Hegel, very problematic philosopher, but one of his best concepts was that history is cyclical, right? And so I want to tie this future you're talking about back to the past where one of the competitive advantages was judgment. And you're saying we still need that judgment. A lot of the way that judgment emerged was people were deep in this data every day, right? It just became intuition for them. So in a world where you're not deep in all of the data every day, where do you craft that judgment, which I think you're saying is still a competitive advantage? Yeah, I see, I, this is a bit where, if I think of the things that I did, did back in the 80s, yeah, did that give me better judgment? And I'd say half of what I did didn't do, it was just processing data. I Did, did I become a better a better underwriter for you know, doing stuff or hunting it down or the like. No, I, it didn't help. What helped me in, in terms of what improved my judgment was understanding over time the losses that I had on my portfolio. I became a better underwriter once I understood that you, 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 you're the best underwriter in the world for the first two years of your life. And then all of a sudden you find out that maybe you, your customers have, have losses and then you learn. So um, I think, I don't think judgment will change. I, it's what's interesting. You're absolutely right. Like if, if the underwriter had no sense of the risk they underwrote to the claims that emerged on that risk, because it was all just flowing through models and they didn't see it. And the, the causation of the loss is where you learn as an underwriter. You know, how did the fire emerge? Yeah. How did the accident happen? That's when you start to understand um, the risks that customers have. You understand the risk management um, activities they're undertaking that will minimise the risk for you as an underwriter. To me, that's how judgment gets informed. All those those elements working through. Will it, it? Is it a risk? Yes, clearly, because if it's pushed too far, then you're you're saying that you lose the ability to um, get better judgment or receive better judgment. What? Where there's no machine that's going to be doing judgment for you. So that 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 would clearly be a risk. I think it's interesting too, going back to uh, Michael, how you were saying, and I agree with you that the, the you're further along on understanding the data 
from the claim side and when there's a loss, right? That's ahead of, of where you are from the underwriting side. And to, to Chris's point, that data you're collecting when there is a claim should help it now inform the future, your underwriting decisions. I think what the judgment element is interesting because you could have like a, a chat GPT or, or, you know, something similar internally saying, analyze the losses for, you know, for the past year for all of this type of risk and identify the characteristics that were similar in all the losses or, or not. And you may find, you know, that, that machine would just tell you purely on the data what's there, but you may have a loss on, on an account that it was a freak accident, right? There was nothing that was inherently more risky on, on that account. And so that's where the judgment comes in to say, would I rewrite this again? Yes, because there was nothing that indicated that there was more likelihood for a fire or a flood. And so th there's the level of what, what I've said is this technology will help get information to you. So then you still have to have your element of analysis on top to identify what does the data say? And then what what's the actual behavior that we need to um, or decision we need to make because if if you leave it to just pure pure black and white data points, you're going to lose out on a lot of great great risks, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you know who knows if something may may fall through the cracks that you normally wouldn't write, but the system is telling you to, and then it may generate a large loss in the future. I think I think you're right on that. I think there's a real risk, but you know, generative AI is going to be one of the biggest tools that will will help underwriters understand what risks they're taking on and more importantly their ability to drill in to something that they may not have been able to do in the past to be able to question and receive information that they probably would have got you know they might have had to read through you know a file that's got 200 pages in it or something but they'll be able to, to question a lot quicker so they're still getting that informative that information coming to them so they can have better informed judgment and and so you don't lose that skill it, it's an interesting, it's a conversation I had with some people recently, which was, you know, we were challenging my my view that judgment uh, wouldn't be auto automated in, in in the short term. What, one of the challenges, somebody said, well, you know, if you look at you know, the S of, you know, the, of SME, the small, the very small things, that is flown through models. Will there be um, risks that are taken on board in that space that you know, probably shouldn't have been accepted? Yes, is the answer to that question. Are those limits big? And will there be sufficient algorithms going on in the background alerting somebody to the fact that it's taken too many things, to accepted too many risks out of appetite? More than likely, yes. The difference in the as you move up the chain um, and where I think the risks become much bigger is just you've got large limits of indemnity. You've got hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of exposure. You, you just can't leave that to an algorithm to go and say that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do is my per my personal view. Um, I'm always happy to be challenged on these things. So. Yeah, so I would say the same thing. I don't actually think it's a technological limitation. I think you could have heuristics plus you know models that aren't black and white make these decisions for you. It's just at some point you're going to want to fire somebody, and it's not satisfying to fire an algorithm. Um, it's and it's not just. It's not just blame, right? It's also regulatory. You just you have to have someone who can explain, even if it's just this was my judgment call. You have to have someone who signs their name to that. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. the other thing I would say is, Michael, I agree with you on the insights. You don't need Gen AI to do most of what you said, um, and I'm actually skeptical that 
in the next five years, even insurance companies will be able to bring things like chat GPT into their workflows, just because you can't put it behind your firewall. Um, and that's going to be a massive limitation. It's an interesting one and maybe one for another conversation. I think there is a, a place for it. Um, maybe not chat GPT. Yeah. Maybe it's some of the other technologies that are, that are uh, I, I, I mentioned this earlier on. I think one of the, the things where chat GPT becomes a bit more tricky is the fact that it's accessing information that you don't know the source of that information. And from an underwriting perspective where you need to rely on disclosable information or at least know where it came from so you can you, know, you, you can trust it 100%. You know, ChatGPT can take it from wherever it's at. And, you know, obviously, all the, all the copyright litigation going on at the moment in the U.S., uh, gives you a sense of this is this has got some way to go before it's going to be unleashed commercially into things like insurance and probably banking and other areas. That's my personal view, but yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Hopefully, you're not building Chat GPT model on the side and you know, on the weekends or something. So <laughs> I don't I don't have sixty million dollars to blow on training. <laughs> Michael, one one more question. I think so. We've talked about the past, the present, and and what technologies we think will help shape the future of underwriting. You had to, to guess, uh, and, and I'll let you kind of go wherever you want with it, whether it's personal lines, commercial lines, what will be kind of a standard workflow in underwriting five years from now? I won't put a time on it, okay? Because I, know it's going to, I don't know what the technologies will be like out there, but um, insurers won't be asking for any data. The future will, will be insurers have access to all the data. You just need to know the customer's name and what line of business they want to underwrite. I suspect this is 10, 20, 30 years away. But the the the, the ultimate future is insurers will have all the data. Somebody will ask for a quote um, for I know, property insurance. And it'll you know, it'll be you know, Chris Wells Enterprises, who now has the you know, is now the biggest IT company in the US. And they will have access to that data. Or it's been granted. So therefore, that's one bit. But the other bit is insurers will know exactly what customers that they want to go after. Yep, they will have already modeled the, you know, they will they would know they would have been using really sophisticated um pricing algorithms that don't even exist today. And um, because you know, they're emerging. But what they'll be using is They'll be able to look at look at all the data that's out there. Say, I want to go after a segment of business. I know every company that operates in that segment. I'm going to model it based and dial it up and dial it down for profitability for capital for whatever whatever metric I'm looking at. And therefore, somebody will come to me, or I'll go to the broker and say, I want Chris Wells Industries. You you are the broker for that account. Here is the quote. Just tell Chris to validate the information is correct. That is the future. Now that future is probably 20 years away, maybe longer, I don't, I don't know. Um, but to me, that's what the future has to be because you. I know people have tried it in personal lines and it, it sort of worked, but again, it didn't work yeah. uh, because A, the ability to access the total universe, of, you need to be able to access the total universe of data for a segment to be able to then say, I can offer a no, a no question, no data quote to somebody and and that's just not available at the moment and then the other bit is you need some pretty sophisticated um technologies to actually craft the portfolios interacting 
your claims models, that capital models, everything else. So you, you, you can literally dial it up, dial it down to see what output you're looking for at any one point in time. So that's to, to me, that's the old, that's the end game. And everything that's happening today, or what we're hearing about with data, what, what's happening with companies that are just doing intake. So the workflows as they exist today won't exist in the future. But I think that's a long way away, what I just described. Fascinating. Well, um, now that you've predicted the future of underwriting and Chris Wells' future, Love it. it's the largest CEO it's of a largest IT one. organization. I did say I it was think, 20 years away. I think uh, you know, Chris may have pivoted at that point in time. <laughs> this has been um, a fantastic look through what I'll call the history of underwriting and insurance. But um, Michael, we'll have to have you back and do like a Back to the Future Part 2 episode and see how all of this emerges over um, the next little bit, especially as you know, generative AI and things take off. Um, so thank you to Michael Duncan, uh, industry veteran and uh, current advisor to to insure tech companies for joining us on today's episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. I'm co-host Chris Wells. And we'll and, talk uh, to you next I'll time. Michael Duncan, thank you. Yeah. Very well. Thanks, Michael. Sure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.